Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh yeah, just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1309, with guest Greg Shackles. Recorded Thursday, June 2nd, 2016. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And I apologize right up front for sounding like Bosley from Charlie's Angels. Nice. I've got a uh, a little virus that won't go away. It's been a couple of weeks. It's been four weeks, actually. And uh, the doctor said she's seeing a lot of this, and people just have to wait it out. She's got a lot of patients that are, you know, going on four or five, six weeks, and uh, there's there's nothing you can do about it. Well, as long as you live, that's the important part. Yeah, that's right. As long as it goes away eventually. Well, uh, how you doing, Mr. Campbell? I'm well, you know, uh, we're, of course, we always record a few weeks ahead. So we're recording this at the beginning of June, uh, for coming out a couple weeks later. And I finally have the stuff coming back from the flood. So excuse me if there's some weird noises in the background. All right. So we'll both ask for a pass this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, Greg Shackles is here. It's going to be a great show talking about mobile, of course. And, uh, now it's time for a little thing we call better know framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? This being show 1309, you can get here by going to 1309.pwop.me or pwop.me. This is, um, it's a story uh, on The Verge about how an online game gave scientists new insight into quantum computing strategies. It's weird, huh? Video, it's, and I'll just read it. Video game strategies may have given quantum researchers a new insight into a crucial problem facing quantum computing, according to a new article in Nature. The research focused on a game called Quantum Moves, which is designed to mimic neutral atoms in an optical lattice. And I think Richard's the only one who knows what we're talking about right now. <laughs> Facing a time limit, players have to transport a quantity of sloshing quantum material into a designated zone without running into obstacles or spilling the material. So like any good game, the optimal strategy isn't immediately clear. Should you move slow and steady or move in small enough jumps that the material isn't disturbed? And gamers turn out to be better at figuring that out uh, than even the most sophisticated simulations. So apparently by just by letting people play the game, they were um, figuring out the best incentives and strategies for how these quantum things work. 
That's awesome. Isn't that great? Gamify. Well, and, and interesting that, you know, you, you generally think the computer player can be made better than the human player, but yet when it comes to certain strategies, that's not the case. Right. People are weird. Yep. <laughs> well, my, minds are amazing. That's true. So, uh, so that's what I got. 1309.prop.me. Awesome. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1255, the one we did with Joe Guadango when we were talking about Azure Application Insights, another instrumentation strategy. Got this great comment from Tim Isles, who said, this was a great show. A client has been using App Insights, and mostly all has been good. However, getting notifications on specific events, like exceptions, is not amazingly well supported yet, and the current roadmap shows no planned improvements in this area. Mm. Although that seems like one of those small improvements is just going to happen in line. You noted in the show that how App Insights supports continuous export to Azure Blob Storage, so I knocked up some code to parse my exceptions out of storage for import elsewhere. My client uses Slack, and so I've integrated a Slack channel webhook, but it could be used to feed into any bug tracking system if mm. anyone else would find this useful, and the code's up, and it gave me a, a GitHub link. So just Great. an interesting little library for exporting stuff from App Insights into Blob Storage. Very cool. I know I've done some stuff with blob storage and um, it can be a little daunting at first, but once you get it, it's, it's pure bliss. Yeah. I mean, it's huge, huge potential and, and just starting to think more about how we have continuous instrumentation that we yeah. just expected to be there all of the time. Yep. So Tim, thank you so much for your comment. I've added the link to your project to the show notes. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We use them like cough drops. And now it's time to bring on or bring back to the show Greg Shackles. Greg is a principal engineer at Olo. He is a Xamarin MVP, Microsoft MVP, host of the Gone Mobile podcast, organizer of the New York City Mobile.net Developers Group, author of Mobile Development with C Sharp, and also a monthly columnist with Visual Studio Magazine. Welcome back, Greg. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always great to chat with you guys. We did some of our uh, most fun mobile talks and Xamarin stuff with you uh, early, very early on. Yeah, going back to, to when you guys were running the, the tablet show. That's right. Yeah, I remember. So what are you doing these days? Um, a lot of the same. I mean, I'm still doing some mobile stuff. I'm still doing a lot of web stuff. I mean, really, at, at Olo, we're doing everything. Um, but the, the stuff that we're going to, you know, we figured we'd chat through today um, is kind of like sitting on the back of... Uh, uh, a talk that I gave at Xamarin Evolve, you know, they, Xamarin ran their third iteration of Evolve, uh, I guess about a month ago at this point, um, which was, as always, a, a fantastic conference. Right. Um, and and I, I was able to, or basically, they, they allowed me to talk about whatever I wanted, which is always kind of nice. Um, mm. And I've been doing a lot of work on the the analytics and instrumentation side on on our apps at work. So, um, I've been really digging into that and having a lot of fun. Like I'm a total data junkie, so it, it gets really like the more data you have, the more you want. So it, mm -hmm. it's a real, uh, <laughs> it could be a real downward spiral sometimes. But um, but but I was able to to give a what I thought was a fun talk on that. So um, hopefully it ends up being interesting for all the listeners as well. Not to digress right now, but it's like now that Microsoft owns Xamarin, I wonder if there's going to be another evolve. 
It's, it's an open question. I, I heard um, a lot of people brought that up at this year's Evolve. Uh, my understanding, sure. and obviously I speak with, with no actual authority or insider knowledge on this part, but um, my understanding is that, that they, they're planning to do another Evolve, or at least that they, they would like to. Um, it's still, I know that they're keeping the, the MVP program intact. They actually just last week announced the new swath of Xamarin MVPs, so they're still kind of keeping that track alive. Nice. Um, and I think they want to really keep the, the culture of like what Xamarin is and their community involvement and that sort of thing um, as, as close to, to what it was as possible, at least for the, the foreseeable future. So I, I would be surprised if there wasn't um, another Evolve, just because it is a very different type of conference. It's a very, um, it's it, it's a pretty small conference in in comparison to you know some of these the huge ones like like Build and and whatnot. Um, but it has Although like a, the naming strategy works, right? You've got Build, Ignite, and Evolve. I mm. think they they work. That yeah, works, right? Yeah, it does all fit together, and it, it has like a great community feel to it. Like it feels just like a like a small town where you have a lot of friends and all that stuff. So it, it is a really fun conference every year. Yeah, it will it will be interesting to see the impact of Xamarin being part of Microsoft. I mean, beyond the thing that everybody freaked out about at Build, which is now the tools are free. Right. <laughs> right. The the biggest standing ovation that they got was was I, unlocking I've, that. You for free. almost never see Scott Guthrie rattled. He was rattled. <laughs> yeah, he like was. The, uh, he looked shell shocked. Yep. For good reason. Wow, people really like this stuff, huh? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not his most articulate <laughs> moment, I think. <laughs> And we like free. <laughs> and we like free. No two ways about it. So there's a whole host of things that um, instrumentation uh, yeah, falls under that umbrella. And and also, um, you know, being able to let the, you know, gather data from your from your users and your testers and, and all of that stuff, but also to be able to provide new builds and, and all of that. It sort of all goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Um and and just to kind of like set the stage for the you know what I at Olo what I basically set out to do um and and, and we'll as we talk about it we'll get into like I'll, I'll talk about some of the tools that we're using um and even before I'll do that I'll preface that with like none of this is meant to say that these are the tools you have to use um I I'll just give some examples of sure. tools that that I really like um I don't get paid for any of them we pay to use them technically <laughs> um but I. The, the story that I really want to get across is just, you know, that you should like what to look for and, you know, how you can potentially go about doing things. But it's kind of the overarching concept that um, that that's more important than the specific tools. But um, when it really comes down to it, like you release these apps out into the wild. Right. And you have thousands or millions of them there. They're off. Um, you know, they're off doing their thing. Um, but then the question becomes, like, do you how do you really know that they're actually working when they're out there? Um, you know, right. do you know, do you know if they're crashing or if they're not crashing? I mean, most people, uh, as, as, at least these days, most people have some sort of baseline of crash reporting in their apps, which is great. Like if, if you don't, then that should be step zero. You need some sort of, like sort of the, reporting. the absolute minimum instrumentation is if this app fails for any reason, send a message. Exactly. So if you don't have that, like that has to be, you know, step zero, really. Um, but then once you go beyond that, you know, hopefully you're you're catching exceptions and you're reporting those and providing some sort of baseline experience for your users. Um, but then it goes it, it goes beyond that real quickly. So, like, do you know if your users are confused by your app or are they able to, to use these new features that, that you think are obvious, but maybe aren't quite as obvious? Or um, how is your app responding uh, 
you know, is, is it really fast or users sitting there waiting for a long time for anything to happen? Um, and I mean, and just like with any platform, like these, these questions aren't really specific to, to apps per se. Um, but if you can't answer any of those questions, then, then you're really flying blind and you have no idea if you know, other than like, you don't want to wait for app reviews to come in to tell you that you did something wrong because almost often, um, and I have charts that, that really articulate this as well. Like more often than not, you're going to get bad reviews than good ones. And you don't want that to right. be your kind of, uh, you know, success indicator <laughs> and bad reviews never go away. They really, really don't. <laughs> and when you make those users happy again, they're not going to come back and change their review. That's just not what people do. Um, so, so really, like we we set out to to get some sort of visibility into into all these different things in our apps. And and at Olo, as you know, we've talked on a few shows now. Like we we deliver white label apps, so so we're putting out our our apps for you know n number of clients. So it gets really, really important to understand what's happening in those. And then the kind of the the real the the main crux of what i i kind of set out to answer is i at a at a basic level what i really wanted to know was how long am i making my users spend like waiting like how long how long is there a spinner up on the screen that's blocking them from doing anything else in the app because that's as a user that's frustrating like that's wasted time that's time that if it takes too long a user is going to go away they're not really going to go back so the real core question that I wanted to know was how long are these spinners up on real mobile devices that aren't on my home, you know, you know, 100 megabit connection or on wireless and all this? Like, how are real users actually experiencing our apps? So that you can actually measure the latency of the cell network they're using and the distance from your services. Like, those are the numbers you really want to get back. Right. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, so many people test you know, in, in great bandwidth situations and not in, you know, terrible situations. That's exactly right. And, and when you think about it, like, so, so on the server side, we, we have a lot of instrumentation already. Like we're, we're huge users of New Relic. So um, like New Relic and Pingdom and all these services that give you, like, we have a very good idea of what our uh, server side response time is for any number of our API endpoints. And we try to keep that as low as possible, like, you, you know, around like the 200 millisecond kind of range or, or lower, ideally. Um, but but then that's not really the whole picture when it comes to these devices. Like, as you just brought up, the latency is a killer on mobile networks. And if you're on like a 3G network, then you can have up to, you know, two, 300 milliseconds of latency round trip um, and that can happen multiple times or you have HTTP handshakes and all these things can happen. Um, so and, and even on like a 4G network or so you can have it's still going to be, you know, maybe 50, 100 milliseconds. So there is a real penalty that you pay for requests that need to go out to the network. And if you're trying to put together a performance budget where you say, well, let's say you want everything to respond within a second or two seconds, and then you subtract a few hundred milliseconds a couple times, like suddenly your performance budget for all of the other things that need to happen other than just the overhead of making a request, your, your budget is, is almost gone right from the start. So it's really, really important to know uh, what, like how users are actually, you know, what scenarios they're in, are they usually on Wi-Fi or are they on 3G or 4G? Like the more you can know about that, the more you can be prepared to deliver that, that, deliver the the expectation that users have of apps being performant and studies that ask users what they care about as far as apps go like they're more and more they're coming back with there's there's a real expectation now of fast 
performing and, you know, very responsive apps. So, you know, you can't easily get away with, you know, just kind of treating that like a, as a, you know, maybe a future iteration, it'll, it'll go fast or, or that sort of thing. Like there's a real expectation for it. And there's a pretty good chance that for whatever your app is doing, there's, there's 10 others in the store that might also be doing that. And you don't want to risk users kind of going off and saying, well, maybe I'll go try that one. Maybe that one's faster because they're probably not going to come back at that point. Yeah, I wonder if you can actually make the ROI case for speed showing when our wait times go up, our, you know, amount of usage goes down. That's, that's stuff we did back in Strangely showing the faster the website went, more people bought and they bought more, right? And as soon as you could show that number, that dollar figure to a head of sales, he cared about performance a lot. Exactly. And, and e-commerce sites are, are kind of the, the prime example of that. And I mean, there's, there's so many case studies out there that, that have shown, you know, sites that, that, you know, had like maybe a 30, 40% boost in, in performance got like a huge jump in basket conversions or mm. people browsing the yeah. site. Like, so there, there is like, there's a definite correlation there. Um, um, and even just in, in user happiness and retention and all of that, you know, the, the better experience that you can give to your users, the more likely they are to, to keep coming back and you'll get repeat business instead of just that first shot. So what are you using to instrument your wait times? So, so there's a number of things you can do. Um, so we, we've taken, so there's a lot of products that are out there. So I, you can use, um, like we use Google Analytics a little bit for basic instrumentation of tracking things like screen hits and tracking paths of users throughout the app. Um, you can also do pretty similar things through Hockey App as well. And especially now that uh, the Xamarin Insights team is being rolled into Hockey App over at Microsoft and all the features that were in Xamarin Insights are being rolled into to Hockey App. Hockey App is going to become a very compelling uh, solution for that kind of thing. In addition to the... Love Hockey App. Right. It, it's a great service. Um, so, but in addition now to the, the distribution stuff that they that we use every day at Olo, honestly, um, to, to distribute beta builds of your apps and all that kind of thing, right. there's more and more features being added around uh, being able to track events and timing and, and all these different things. So at a at a very basic level like this, those things like hockey or Google Analytics or Mixpanel or Twitter's uh, fabric framework, uh, these are all really great ways and low overhead ways to to get started saying like tracking events because it does go beyond timing and stuff as well. Like you want to know which you want to you want to publish events that are meaningful from your application. So, you know, what features are being used or not used for that for that matter. Um, so services like that. Um, the, they they offer really, really nice and really easy ways to get started. At this point with those tools, you're not talking about coding specifically around wait events. You're getting them implied just by studying the overall traffic stream? Yeah. So so I can kind of dig into a little like of what we did where I kind of took that a couple steps further because sure. I don't know, I'm, I'm a little sick in the head. Um, but Oh, no, no. Like, we knew well, that about you, Greg. We've known that a long time. I'm uh, sick in yeah. the chest, actually, myself. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got our ailments. Um, so what we're actually doing now, in addition to the the basic logging that we're we're sending over to GA, is uh, we're using a service called Datadog that that I've become um, just a massive massive fan of over the last year or so. Yeah. Um, so basically, what we're doing from our from our applications is we're collecting um, timing information from every network request that goes out, and since our apps are using HTTP client. Um, it's actually really, really trivial. And I have a, a blog post that shows, you know, how in like six lines of code you can do this is like H HTTP client actually allows you to send in in its uh, constructor 
uh, a handler or a message handler object. I forget the exact base class um, that'll give you hooks into all the different lifecycle events of that request. So all all we really needed to do was say, okay, well, wrap the send piece of this request in a timer and then report that time that like figure out from the stack trace which method was being called or you could do it based on the url that it was going to go out to and then log log a metric that says this network request to to this url took you know x number of milliseconds and then we kind of batch all those up and periodically uh pulse that out back to our api which then dumps it into to our datadog dashboards and then datadog allows you to um, create all sorts of really nifty like visualizations and and really uh, allow you to tailor a view into your system in, in whatever way is meaningful for you. Um, and we go kind of beyond the, the network request too. Like I'm looking at our, uh, our app Datadog dashboard now and I can see uh, a, what they call a top list of the slowest API calls and how long those are taking. And it's all broken down by the different API calls. I could see how many are succeeding and failing. Um, right. Like, if you go back to what we were talking about before of how expensive these network requests are to make, you, you definitely don't want to make them more than once. So you want to know if you're, you know, they're failing and the app is having to retry and retry over and over. Um, but then taking that even a couple steps further, like we're measuring some other things as well. So database access within the app, we have all of that wrapped in timers. And then we're reporting back each database call that we might make and how long those are taking to get some sort of sense of um, like there. What I really wanted to know was, well, for one, how does how do these individual database calls behave on, you know, quote unquote, normal user devices? But also, is there a significant difference between iOS and Android? Um, So we're able to slice up all that information um, based on all that. Um, and same with view models too. So we're, our applications are broken up using the MVVM pattern where each, mm-hmm. basically each screen within the application is its own view model that has its own loading lifecycle. So that loading lifecycle is wrapped in a timer and reports back. So we can really get, um, a very visual sense, um, very quickly, um, and in real time, mind you, you know, plus or minus 30 seconds of, what users are actually spending their time waiting for, which screens are really expensive, where they might be getting stuck. So it gets really, really powerful that way. You know, there's two distinctly different sets of data here because you sort of have that demographic data of what was the device? You know, what kind of phone was it? What operating system was it running? What network was it on? How much memory did it have? What is screen resolution? I consider that like demographics. Tell me about the client. And then you have the separate thing, which is the event. He waited this long for this or, you know, that piece took this piece of the screen took this long to render like those kinds of measurements. How do you store all of that? How do you organize it? So for the most part, we're just pumping that into uh, into Datadog, um, you know, and, and there's some stuff that, that at one, some point we might end up persisting on our side. Um, like right now, it's totally like anonymized. None of this is tied to users or anything like that. Right. Like there there is also something to be. that's definitely a point worth making of, you know, if, if you're storing real data about real people, you want to be very conscious of what you're actually keeping there. So the, the stuff that we're actually streaming out is, you know, it's not tied to any particular users or any device IDs or anything like that. It's very much, you know, it's just saying, here's a data point and it was from iOS or Android, or it was from this brand's app and this version of that brand's app. Um, And that's sort of the, the limits of where we've drawn of, the you know the personalization of that data 
Yeah, I mean, demo data and PII is are different things, right? Like, one is the even when you get into this was a woman of this age in this profession. That's not necessarily considered PII. That's demo data, right? It's just it's demographics to help you do selection. There's lots of people to qualify that. When you get too granular with demo data, is where you could end up identifying <laughs> someone. Right, right. You know, right. We, we've done a show around this whole thing. It's just sort of you get to you know what is the granularity on that. Then I, I mean I'm all over the privacy issue. It's just a, a question of if I don't have enough information about the device. I have a tough time sorting out, well, why are we getting this set of errors or why is this thing slow? You, you, you can find a consistency like this carrier in this neighborhood is just slow, right? I right. can't fix my app. It's their network. If you have so much data, though, can you can do you rely on sort of uh, predictive analytics and uh, machine learning to find trends? I mean, who's going to sift through all that data to find you know, individual problems and pinpoint things like Richard's talking about. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where, and we haven't really gotten to to that stage in our analytics, but I mean, you can, you can take this, you know, road as, as far as you want. Um, and, and like Richard was saying, like a lot of this is very metadata, the more metadata you have, the less meta it gets and you can do that. Um, but we are we are also using, as I mentioned, Google Analytics, which also captures for us all the um, device operating system information and, uh, you know, device information and cell networks and things like that. So that's we're also using that very heavily to have a sense of, well, what are the what are the top devices that our users are using? Which versions of, say, Android or iOS are they actually using? Like, is it safe to drop iOS 7 or is it safe to drop? Android 4.2 or, or what have you. Um, you want to know how many users you're about to piss off by removing some <laughs> sort of support before, <laughs> you know, you actually piss them off. So if, if you can see that the numbers get low enough that you can justify pulling support for something, um, that that's really, really powerful. So we use that all the time to say, well, here's, you know, here's the areas that where our users are um, accessing the applications from. Um, you, you can take that um, any number of ways too. like in answer. One of the things that, that I'm very curious to, to get into is, is having better senses of, well, like a lot of our users are placing orders at stores um, and then going to pick up the, those orders. So one of the things that becomes very useful is having, starting to get a sense of, well, are they, where are they when they're placing that order? Are they near the store? Are mm. they at home? Yeah. Are they on their way out and doing things? Yeah, and you yeah. can start to, and you can start to get into really interesting predictive scenarios where you might imagine, you know, having a when you have a sense of like when their food's going to be ready and when they're going to be in that area, you might tell the store, hey, they're they're almost there or um, there, there's there's so many directions where you can go with that sort of data. And sure. it, it definitely gets more personalized in in that sense. But but it's very interesting. Do you worry about the creepy factor? Like, you know, having your app know a little too much about people and then they, you know, send them messages and they're kind of like, Ugh. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely something to, to keep in mind. Like, I know, I think the last time I was on this show, we talked about iBeacons where you definitely have to be aware oh, yeah. of the, the creepy factor. Like, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to detect that someone walked into a store and then say like, hi, nice to see you when they're actually like in, they see that when they're in the bathroom of the store or something like that. Like that's, you don't want your ass. <laughs> yeah. Like you can, there's, there's real world implications to a lot of this. Um, we talked to Tim Huckabee uh, about his retail app that his company is doing and how it knows and profiles people and, you know, uh, and, you know, we're just, 
I think Richard and I just had a kind of a creep response to that. (laughs) He's all for it and people love it in retail, but wow. Yeah. The question is, does the customer love it? You know, could I give a corollary story working with uh, a uh, financial institution in, in Europe where we got instrumentation on on the internal applications to the point where when you have a failure in one of the apps, tech support calls you before you call them. Yeah, that's the kind of creepy you like. Yeah, it's like, hey, we see you're having a problem. Let me help you, right? Like, this is what's going on. I see the error this way. And and it's just a straight productivity booster, right? That folks feel, you know, that their software is well supported and that they're going to get help right away. They're right. right on top of it. Right. And that's exactly where things like error reporting and crash reporting are so critical, too, because you have that opportunity to get in in that small window where a user might be pissed off at your app or, you know, not having a really good time. But if you're able now to you can delight them, swoop in right? there you could, sure. and you're yeah. like, oh, well, th- these people are paying attention. That that was a I, I just had a really good experience with an actual person that works for this thing. Then that does in some ways that goes even further to solidify their loyalty to you and your mm-hmm. platform. So so that yeah. can be a really, really powerful motivator. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to have a meta conversation about a meta conversation about a meta conversation. A, a, about a meta conversation <laughs> about a meta conversation stop me anytime i think i know that conversation <laughs> yeah. i don't know if i can stop you this keeps looping uh, but I'm, a- I'm i'm tempted to ask you to yodel for me because you sound great oh thanks no i'm i'm bosley <laughs> from charlie's angels right now that's what i am um it's actually time to give away a telerec devcraft collection to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club Have you ever used a product that was so bad you wondered whether the people who created it have ever used it themselves? Well, Telerik has been building the best UI controls in the world for over a decade now, but more importantly, they've been using them in their own projects. That means they know what it takes to build real-world apps, and Telerik knows what makes developers want to pull their hair out, having shed some of their own. No more silly Northwind demos. Get real UI for real applications. Download Telerik DevCraft today and enjoy the most complete set of user interface components for .NET desktop, mobile, and web development. Try it today at Telerik.com slash devcraft. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Marcia Guzman. Ah, congratulations, Marcia. I hear the clappers. The clappers are back. Yes. I'll clap for you. And Marcia just won the Telerik DevCraft collection, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you have to sign up to win. So, Greg, it's your turn. And I can't remember what you said last time, but this time it's different. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? I actually can't remember what I answered previous times uh, as well. But so I think I think what I would go for is, um, and I think a few people on, on your show recently have, have been saying the same kind of thing, is is more around the, the home automation space. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I'm not sure how... Well, I guess I am sure. I, I'm sure how welcome that would be um, with with my wife, who also lives here, um, and it would be not welcome at all. Like I recently picked up uh, um, an Amazon Echo, which is now is what she's referring to as a murder bot. So, <laughs> 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 um, 
<laughs> yeah, like she's, so the creep factor is too high. Yeah, the the creep factor is there. She, like I, I catch her like you know side eyeing it out of the you know like as we're just like sitting in the living room. You know, there's definite level of distrust. So I'm not sure how much support I would actually get for bringing in uh, more murder bots into the house. Um, I might have nice. to apply apply some of that to a divorce lawyer or something. <laughs> is it because it's always listening? I think that's that's a big factor of it. Yeah, I in between. I mean, you have your phones which are listening, and then you know, as as Apple TV and then platforms like that are kind of listening, and then you know, you hear stories of well, you know, Samsung TVs were always listening, and people were always able to hear. And then I bring in this device that you know, one of the features is that it's listening. <laughs> it's, uh, I would love to see a video, and I might do it myself of of Siri and you know the Echo. What's the Echo um, person's uh, name? Uh, Alexa. Alexa. Yeah, Alexa yeah. and Siri and Cortana trying to have a conversation with each other. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be awesome. And they're they're all trying to be so helpful and yet they and they end up being really annoying to each other. I think that would be <laughs> hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. I probably didn't help my own case by asking it to open the pod bay doors and it responded <laughs> it responded appropriately and I'm that sorry, did not Greg. Well. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I think the creep factor was a bit too high on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Once it once the device is in on the gag that your wife's not in on, you're really in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's pretty funny. So can you tell us a story of of um uh, of instrumentation gone wrong? Yeah, I, I I wouldn't say necessarily gone wrong, but I when we first released this um, uh, in, in one of our first larger apps to to go to go live with it, um, we noticed that. And one of the other things to keep in mind when you're instrumenting things, it's it's super super important to not make your performance worse by or at least significantly worse by trying to measure your performance because then you're really not doing yourself any favors. So right. I know when we when we first wrote some of this instrumentation code. Uh, what I actually did is I, I, I wrote the, the code that I was going to use to instrument things. Um, I spun up a, a Xamarin Forms application, um, ran, you know, ran it in, you know, in, in a loop for n number of times. And then I actually sent that out to Test Cloud to run it on all sorts of different devices mm -hmm. and then see how it, how the instrumentation code and just the instrumentation code would actually perform on all sorts of kind of crappy devices out there. So it was actually, it was, it was the first time I've explicitly used test cloud as a, you know, a, a performance monitoring and instrumentation tool like that. Um, but it was, it was kind of an interesting use case, but that, so that's how we, you know, I became comfortable with wrapping, say, every network call in, in a certain block of code or every database call and that sort of thing. Um, but one of the things that, uh, one of the things that got interesting with with the the instrumentation code as we wrote it is, I, as I mentioned, we hooked right into the HTTP client there, which meant that any request that went out was instrumented in itself. And that included the call to our server to log those uh, metrics back to, to our server and then Datadog. So even the instrumentation call to our API was itself instrumented. And that meant that regardless of whether anything else had happened in the app in the, say, 30 seconds since the last log, there would always at least be one thing in there, which was the last log call. So what we were starting to see was apps sitting in the background on people's phones, you know, basically every 30 seconds having effectively like a heartbeat back to our servers. Yeah. That was just one metric of the, the log metric call. <laughs> um, so. And, and it wasn't, this isn't a, a heavy call. It wasn't, we weren't really draining batteries or anything like that. Yeah. And the operating systems would recycle us. But it was one of those things where, you know, I just had a kind of, you know, a 
uh, forehead to the desk kind of moment when I saw that. I'm like, oh, crap, that's probably something we should we should prevent. Um, but you do want to be very, very conscious of what you're doing to the network, which in turn is, you know, it impacts what you're doing to the the, the battery on these devices and that sort of thing. Like, yes, you don't you, you don't want to be especially as like iOS and Android, you know, they're they're adding more and more features that really shame the applications that are eating up your your battery life. And you don't want to be the one at the top of that list because you're probably going to get uninstalled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't, You never want to be the top of the battery life list. That, that, that will get you lynched. And what are some of the things you can do to mitigate that and ameliorate it? I mean, do you, do you shut your network down when you're not using it? Yeah, I mean, there are things you can do around that. Um, one of the, the big things that, that we do is just having, um, we try to be really smart about the types of caches that we have inside of the app. Mm-hmm. So if you know that something's not going to change for a period of time, then you can keep that in memory. But at the same time, not wanting to keep something, a whole bunch of objects in memory that you're not going to need again. So trying to tune that. I um, mean, that's actually, again, where you can start instrumenting your caches now and you could you could start reporting back data that says, okay, well, this cache is being, you know, maybe it's not big enough and it's being cleared out or refreshed every like way too often, or it's all misses in this cache or all hits. Um, so you could start to get real data on how effective the, the cache is that you're doing. Um, same with things like database calls. If you don't want to be doing too many database calls over and over and over and, you know, just eat up battery life and that sort of thing. So it really just comes down to, to knowing which resources on the phone you're you're actually using and trying to to be smart about when you do that, and then um, we talked a lot there about you know a lot of the the qualitative you know almost demographic type things of you know the types of devices that users have and the types of networks that they're on and how long are all those things taking, um, and I definitely want to make sure that we also talk about the the behavioral side of this as well, which is really really powerful because. Um, this is where you can start to define metrics that are that are not just you know purely performance related, but they're they're actually meaningful to the the domain of your application itself. So you can start say timing the time it takes to complete critical f- flows of your app, like maybe right. or uh, card abandonment rate in the case of an e-commerce app or classic. Right. Or specific actions within an app. Like you want to know which features, like just like before where we talked about, well, you don't really want to piss off users because you removed support for the their version of Android or their version of iOS or what have you. You also don't want to remove the feature that you might not care about anymore, but users are spending all of their time in. Like that's not going to be a good recipe either. So I mean, once you start logging these events and having a real sense of how many people, like what people are actually doing as they're spending time in your application, you'll know, like, are they using that new feature that you're really fond of? Or can they, can they even find it? Maybe they have no idea it's there. Is it safe to, to remove that old stuff? You know, are you, um, and then, and as you have this, uh, this kind of baseline of data over time, you could start tracking it across releases as well. So you'll know if you're making things better or making things worse. But until you really have the stream of data coming in that you can tie to specific versions and timeframes, it's really hard to know if you're doing a good job or a bad job in many ways. So how do you figure out if someone's using a feature? Is this just looking at method calls or when certain buttons are clicked? Like, what do you watch? So for our apps, I mean, it comes down to just trying to... For certain cases, it'll be looking for screen hits of certain screens within the app. Um, and in some cases, it's going to be logging specific events for certain things in the app. Um, right. Like, like an example, like a really trivial example from our app would be like, I was, we were really curious of whether anyone was using a feature in our app that let you pull up a store's 
uh, information and actually make a phone call to that store. So, right. you know, you just log an event when they wanted to make a phone call. And we saw that a lot of people were were actually doing it, um, which is really good to know. And you, you want to make sure that you're keeping features around that people are actually using. That makes people happy. But that also, to me, speaks to immediately. It's like, we better make sure that data is correct. Like, that was an initiative to push each of the stores to make sure their hours are right and their and the address is correct and the phone number is right and so forth. So you don't annoy people with a feature they, they want to use. Right. And then you can you can really take things another step further. And then once you have this data that you can fall back on, you can start doing things like A-B testing, where you can start tweaking things for some set of users. And you'll have you'll have the data to fall back on to say, well, did that make a notable change in behavior? If I change, say, right. again, using a trivial example, like change this button from green to blue, did that make people do something more, do that less? Um, and you can you can create much different, more interesting A-B testing examples based on whatever you're trying to discover. But if you don't have that baseline of data coming in, it gets really, really hard to actually know whether you're doing something right or wrong or making it better or worse. I mean, this is stuff I've seen done a lot online on websites where you test different ads or you test different button styles because when you get it right, the yield is huge. Like it gets used a lot more. Exactly. And, and, and like I said in the beginning, like a lot of this isn't necessarily new. Like this is, this is stuff we've been doing on the web for years, right? And it's right. a lot of it comes down to figuring out what the overlap is with, between the web and mobile and then which things are unique to mobile apps themselves. And that especially comes in with you have access to check things like your, your battery life or the cell network and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, better location details and, and a lot of that. Um, so there is a lot of overlap conceptually. Um, and then it kind of just have comes you ever found that people are, or is there a way to measure that people are, are bouncing out of your app to look up something and then bouncing back to your app? Hmm. Um, you, you would be able to kind of measure that because you each OS kind of gives you, um, you know, some life cycle events to know when you're activated and deactivated or backgrounded right. and that sort of thing. Um, we, we haven't done any of that ourselves, but that, that actually is a, a pretty interesting, uh, thing to think about. But you could, that is. Well, it's like, are you missing some information that the, that the user would like to have? And you can see it because they skip away from your app for, for 20 seconds and come back again and maybe even paste something into a field. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm only bringing this up because I've done this, right? That I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to use this klutzy app and it's like, it wants a piece of information and that's not here. Yeah. So I'm going to go get it from somewhere else and bring it in. And you know, I'm, I hate to say it, but Windows Phone was the best for going between apps like that. Um, I find it frustrating as heck on Android and almost infuriating on iOS. <laughs> Just the number of swipes and gestures you need to go from one app to another and, uh, I, don't get me started. <laughs> well, uh, and it. let me bring up an old-fashioned phone story that of perfect UI, BlackBerry. Yeah. If you had an Outlook calendar event for a conference call, so your conference call's got an 800 number and then like a 10-digit dial-in code, BlackBerry parsed that. When you went and dialed that phone number, as soon as the call went through and was completed, it would replace the dialing number with the conference call, uh, conference code. Yes. You didn't have to do anything. It just happened. Nobody's replicated that. I swear to God, BlackBerry <laughs> had this in the middle 90s. That little problem right there, that workflow, Richard, had pre- has prevented me from getting on calls over and over and over again. I had Absolutely. To, I had to break out a pencil and write it down. 
Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you can't memorize a nine digit number sitting in your car trying to get on a call. Well, you first have to, if you're going to, you got to memorize one or the other. You either got to memorize yep. the phone number or the code. <laughs> we still, st- this is ridiculous. We're still arguing about this problem, right? Like th- that's the reality. But I start thinking about when you get beyond error handling in your app and, you know, basic feature utilization, it's like, can I start telling where people are struggling? They want to use my app so bad. They're doing something really hard mm. that I could make easier for them. Yeah. Right. And, and that's really the, the crux of, of what we set out to do and what a lot, it's really heating up in, in the mobile space, which is fun to watch. Um, uh, like again, it's, it's been really common and it's, it's well, you know, it, it's a well-beaten path on the the website, but you're really seeing it more and more um, on the app side with with services like Insights and now Hockey App um, spawning up. Um, Raygun is a, I believe, very soon they're going to be launching um, a version of Pulse that has support for iOS, Android, and and Xamarin iOS and Android that does a lot of these same kind of things. Um, so there, there's a lot of services and there's a lot of attention um, being paid to analyzing and providing insight into these sorts of things because they are super, super important. Yeah, it's just a question of, I mean, I, was, I can't tell you how many links I've grabbed as you've been talking, Greg, just all the different tools for instrumentation. I mean, there's a ton of them. <laughs> yeah, there really are. It always comes back to what are we trying to measure? Like, what's important here? I, I get that crash capture is important, but really I want to, I love the idea of we, the operators of software, not necessarily even the developers, being able to come back and say, here's how our apps are currently being used. I think we should focus on these features. You said this right at the top of the show. How do I figure out if a user is confused by my application? Yeah. Like that seems yeah. like a very meta thing to figure out. Yeah, it is. And it, it- some of it, some of it you can do analytically and you can, you can get the, these quantitative data sets to, to help do that. Um, and honestly, another thing that we do is just actual user testing. So, you know, this right. is, that's, that's a whole other area, but like there have been times where we, we get cameras in a room and, you know, tape, you know, give someone uh, a task to do in the app and see where they stumble. And it could be a very humbling thing. Um, but yeah, there are, there are a lot of different services out there and there's only more and more of them. Um, and I probably don't help the confusion factor by it. It's easy for me to kind of get into to a feverish, excited state when talking about all this because it's a lot <laughs> of fun. But it's not nearly as overwhelming as I potentially made any of it sound like you can start super, super basic with this stuff. Like I said, just throw in something like hockey or Raygun or Google Analytics. Start, you know, dip your toe in, do the, you know, see what what kind of meaningful things you can get. And then you start layering in services on top of that. Like we use RunScope for a lot of API monitoring. And then like, well, basically every service under the sun, you can hook into each other because everything has webhooks now. So you can also yep. get um, the, the other really daunting thing, especially at, at Olo where we have, you know, say, say Raygun, Slack, RunScope, Datadog, Google Analytics, Sumo Logic, New Relic, you know, it goes on and on. And now you have this massive list of dashboards that you need to be checking all the time, which is very, very stressful. Yeah. But they all have features where you can have them alert you when certain things happen. So we'll have, you know, alerts go into different Slack rooms, depending on what happens. So you can start really tying all of these tools together in a way that, you know, things can flow out to you rather than you having to go query manually as well. So, so this is just a lot of ways that you can figure out um, like what, what sort of system works for you and helps you accomplish um, what you're actually trying to accomplish with, with your applications. Yeah, I, I do think asking good questions in the first place is kind of interesting. And there's got to be some point where this goes above the developer pay grade. 
Like you, you, you got to turn to management and say, what did you want to know about our application? Like we, we're, what are we actually looking at? What are the business metrics of this app? And can you start answering those questions? Exactly. And that's going to help shape, you know, the direction that, that your business goes in some sense, too. And, and you could potentially, once you have this data and you start seeing how things are used, you can start predicting where, where some technology might go or start seeing a gap. And maybe there, there's something that you can solve that, that isn't solved currently. Like the, there's just nothing but potential once you actually have this level of insight into things. Yeah. What if we had an emerging, we emerged a feature based on utilization? Hmm. You know, that, that's exactly. just a really yeah. interesting idea. Yep. Well, I, I think that's a show, guys. Um, Greg, it's always good to talk to you. And uh, we had some great ideas passed around on this show. Yeah, absolutely. I always appreciate being on. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a